Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, who have we got next, April? Who have we got for them? So, what we've got next, we have got Chris Hawkins. Yeah, so welcome to the stage, Chris Hawkins. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ, live from the fringe at Tramlines. You can't wait until you feel ready. You've just got to get out there. Learn to count to four and have good taste. Here I am. Use my time. Here we go. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from this box here of 45. The DJing just came along by accident and realized that's where my passion really lay. And here with me on stage is a DJ whose career in music began at a record shop called Selector Disc in Nottingham. And everyone I worked with in the shop was like, this is rubbish. I went, no, this is amazing. I can't wait to play this at the garage. As a house music pioneer, he became synonymous with the Hacienda. 20 feet in the air, door shut. All my concern was the dance floor. He's a major part of Hacienda Classical. It's great because it was supposed to be a one-off and I've ended up going back to what I originally wanted to do, which was to play in bands. As a DJ, I still love playing new stuff and discovering new stuff. And it gets a bit tedious when people say, come on, Parker, get some proper classics on. Please give it up for Graham Park. What a fantastic introduction. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Graham Park. Graham, before we head into the big box of questions, how did you get the job at Selectedis that kind of set your career in motion? I was telling this story to my 16-year-old twin boys who I am trying to persuade to get a job before sixth form. I just got the job by hanging out in the record shop. I, I lived in Nottingham. It's a long story how I moved to Nottingham from Scotland, but I ended up in Nottingham playing saxophone and uh, singing in bands. But I was always in Selectedisc, always. It just got to know me. And I did mention that I'd worked in a record shop in Scotland when I was at school called Bruce's Record Shop. And one day I was in there, they said, are you busy today? Do you want to help out? We're short-staffed. Two weeks later, I was running the singles department. It was like a real education because obviously I'm keeping on top of all the new stuff. Being an independent record shop, it was like, you know, all the kind of factory stuff and all the independent stuff. But people would come in and say, oh, do you want to buy my records off me? And I'd be like, oh my God, amazing stuff. And of course, I'd give them as little as I could get away with. And the really good ones I'd put under the counter and buy for myself. And you've been to my lockup. It's full of those records. Yeah, it's an amazing treasure trove. It needs sorting out. <laughs> Graham, uh, you mentioned that you were in bands. Were you any good? We were pretty good. We supported um, some well-known bands who were on the circuit. I remember we supported the Blow Monkeys. Anyone from the East Midlands, I don't know if you remember a band called the Swinging Laurels, but we did a lot of things with them. And um, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a band and... The DJing just came along by accident and I'll get, I thought I'll give it a go and realised that's 
where my passion really lay. I mean, before then, I was probably laying the kind of background for being a DJ without realising it, because every time we went to a party after a club closed, I would always end up being in charge of the music, especially if it was at my house, you know, and nobody could get near the decks. But the, the owner of Selected Disc bought a nightclub, asked me to DJ there. I wasn't keen, but I valued my job so much, I thought, well, I better do it. And within two or three weeks, I thought, this is amazing. I'm getting paid money and I don't have to share it with the rest of the band. I don't have to set any equipment up. I don't have to pay the drummer's girlfriend to do the door. And I play music I love and people seem to love the music I play. Which was what? What were you playing at that time? This is 1983, 84. So all the factory stuff, you know, New Order, Joy Division, lots of Sheffield music. Cabaret Voltaire, uh, Heaven 17, Human League, ABC. Also old soul, funk, disco, Motown. I, I grew up listening to Motown. My mum listened to Motown a lot. And just a real mix of stuff. And then kind of 84, 85, all that early electro stuff came over from New York, like Africa Bombata, Johnson Crew, all the Arthur Baker stuff. Then it was hip hop. And it wasn't until the kind of 85, 86, when those early house tunes came along. And then, of course, that took over. How did that work for you there? How did you first hear house music and what made you think it was going to be a thing? I was on the phone to one of the distributors at Selected Disc and it was the, one of the independents. And he goes, and lastly, Graham, we've got these 12-inch singles, electronic dance stuff from Chicago and Detroit. I went, yeah, give me one of each. And there's about five records. And the next day I thought, let's check them out. And the first one was JM Silk, Music is the Key. So I slid my nail down the shrink wrapping, took it out, put it on, and it was the most incredible thing I'd heard in a long time. It was this robotic electronic beat that was clearly made with cheap drum machines and synthesizers. And then this great male vocalist called Keith Nanali, his amazing vocal, soulful vocal over this robotic beat. It was a Steve Soak Hurley production before Jackie Body, And everyone I worked with in the shop was like, this is rubbish. I went, no, this is amazing. I can't wait to play this at the garage. And it sounded incredible in a club. And what kind of reaction did it get the first time you played? Not great. Oh, really? No, um, because, you know, it was a real eclectic mix of tunes at the time. So you'd go from hip-hop to Talking Heads to Orange Juice to Motown to a bit of disco. And early house music was about the same speed is early hip-hop about 118 to 120 mixed it in and some people liked it but it took over that view records one week just became an avalanche by the end of 87 and do you think by that stage you were obviously feeling comfortable as a dj but were you confident yeah because it, i just had access to every new release i didn't have a warm-up dj i turned up at nine o'clock and played till two so I kind of warmed up for myself. But I knew what things would sound like in a club. And I would know instinctively, I can't wait. I'm going to drop this later when it's busy. But the thing is, what I miss is there are very few clubs with resident DJs now. And, and I was a resident at the garage for, what, eight years? And then the Hacienda for seven years. And then, he, and then when the Hacienda closed, I did cream every month for, for a few years. And you get to know the crowd as a DJ, but more importantly, they get to know you. And that's where you can try things out. When you're just a constantly being a guest DJ, it's sometimes more difficult to take those risks. It depends on the crowd, it depends on the venue. It's, it's about a trust. 
Exactly. Remember the Hacienda dropping Ghost Town by the specials randomly out of the blue. Just let this mad acid house record finish. Keep a bit of silence for 10 seconds. Everyone is, um, shall we say, in a certain place. Drop Ghost Town, the place went mental. But people remember the night I did that. Yeah. It's like um, uh, your friend and ours, Vernon Kay, still rabbits on about the night I played Raspberry Beret at the Hacienda. Just because it felt like the right thing to do. Yeah, that, uh, I guess, is about instinct, isn't it? And confidence, I guess, breeds an instinct as a DJ. Well, yeah, you've got to know your crowd, uh, which if you're a resident DJ, you should anyway, because you see them every week. I mean, I started playing, my first gig in Sheffield was the mid-80s with the Jive Turkey people. Um, at City Hall. I don't know if anyone ever went to the Jive Turkey Nights at City Hall. They were incredible. Parrot and Winston. And so I've been playing in Sheffield long enough to, I like to think when I DJ here, I know the Sheffield crowd. So you do Sheffield on a regular night or how did it work? Well, I did it from time to time. And then about 87, I did every Wednesday at the lead mill, the amazing lead mill. We had a night called the Steamer. And it was me every Wednesday. And this was like mid to late 80s. I was Wednesday night Sheffield, Thursday night Leicester, Friday night the Hacienda, Saturday night Nottingham. And that was it for many years. And it was just amazing times. Yeah. And how did different crowds in different cities react to potentially the same music? Well, kind of late 80s, Acid House just took over. Everywhere went from having its own little kind of vibe and then Acid House and Ecstasy together just swept across the north and the midlands eventually reaching the southeast fact the hacienda i went in its very latter days and it was a half empty wednesday night and i thought this might be the worst club i've ever been to but everyone remembers it so fondly what was it actually like i used to go to the hacienda when i lived in nottingham i used to get the train up to go and see Bands like Orange Juice or A Certain Ratio or Aztec Camera. Any, any Scottish band, basically. Because I was a big factory records geek. And it was a great live venue. It wasn't until um, 87, 88 that it became a massive club night. And it really was incredible. 88 to 92, Friday night, me and Mike Pickering, nude night, was just incredible. And people talk about that as the golden period. But then Mike left to go and do M People and I moved to Saturdays. And there's a lot of people who talk about 92 to 97 as their period. But when it was less about the kind of acid house and the Detroit techno, and it was more about um, soulful, deep, kind of moody um, and techy stuff. So two great, great periods. Well, what was the crowd like? Because there was a dark side to the Hacienda, was there? There was an edge to the place. There was, but you see, I'm the last person to talk about that because the DJ booth at the Hacienda was 20 feet in the air. All we could see was the dance floor and the stage and we had the best DJ box door ever. It was a stable door. So you could keep the bottom locked and open the top and keep people out. And Mike and I just spent our whole night in there. I didn't actually live in Manchester. I only moved to Manchester the week after the Hacienda closed. I mean, that's bad timing, really. (laughs) So yes, there were gang issues. Dave Haslam talks about a time he got a gun pulled on him at the Hacienda. Yeah, well, you know, everyone's got a nice story to tell about the Hacienda, haven't they? (laughs) I mean, I I never got a gun pulled on me. Um, I got lots of things offered to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And I, it was incredible. I, like I say, 20 feet in the air, door shut. All my concern was the dance floor and the stage. Can you describe the feeling of the best of nights at the Hacienda? Put yourself there now. Imagine yourself to that DJ booth overlooking the crowd at the Hacienda on a brilliant night. Well, they were all brilliant. That's the thing. It wasn't like, I wonder what this Friday will be like. It was absolutely electric in there. From when I got out of the taxi on the corner of Whitworth Street West and City Road, there was a real electric atmosphere in the air, a kind of sense of anticipation about what was about to come when you went through the 51 numbers on the door. And inside, because, you know, as soon as the doors opened at nine, because people were queuing from seven, they would just rush in straight to the dance floor and it would be 100 miles an hour till the end of the night. And that was every single Friday. And then in the 90s, every single Saturday, without exception. I've never had a rubbish night at Hacienda ever. And I assume it would be sought after for bands to get their music played. Oh, the whole of the London-based dance music industry would come up to Manchester en masse on a Friday by train, by plane, by company car. And they'd all have acetates with them or dats in the 90s, desperate for me or Mike when I was with Mike on a Friday to play um, their tracks. But it was like, well, if you want me to play the acetate, you need to get a cassette to me at my hotel or at Mike's. Have you ever done that? Just played something thinking, I'm going to trust in this. It should be okay. Once, a really good friend of mine who um, now works, <laughs> he's really big cheese in, in music business and television. And I trusted him implicitly. And he's like, Parky, normally I'd give you the cassette, but trust me, this is massive. And I'm like, yeah, I trust you, Simon. And queued up this acetate and put it on and it was the biggest load of dog shit I've ever heard in my life and I turned around and Simon was pissing himself laughing he did it deliberately as a joke oh no yeah 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 (laughs) what used to go down best what songs what music it was all about what new tunes me and Mike had discovered from across the pond and from across Europe and in in the UK. It was anything and everything, but very house dominated, you know. But the thing is, all the years I was at Hacienda, I lived in London, and the amount of times on on a Friday morning, the phone would ring and it would be somebody from a record company going, Parky, what time are you leaving for Manchester today? I'm driving today, I want to be on the road for 12. Oh, right, I'm sending a bike with two test pressings or an acetate or, or whatever. And that was a regular occurrence. I'd be sat in my house going, hurry up, ringing up, where's this bike? I want this acetate. It was really exciting times. And uh, did you get carried away at that time yourself, you know, without going into too much detail? Was it a time when you think you probably enjoyed yourself too much? I can't remember. <laughs> That's the answer. No, of course, yeah. <laughs> I was 30 years younger and just full of just enjoying uh, everything and everything that came with it, yeah. Uh, was it sad to see the Hacienda go? Well, it was sad when Channel 4 invited me, Peter Hook and Tony Wilson to watch it being demolished from inside. And I regret going to that uh, filming because I just remember seeing a JCB grab the proscenium arch above the stage and pull it down. And then there was a breeze blew through us and Tony Wilson and Peter Hook went, that's Rob Gresson. And we're all like filling up. But then two weeks later, we were all taking part in the filming of 24 Hour Party People where they recreated the interior to the millimeter. So that, those memories went. Yeah, it was sad, but it, it kind of had the last year or so, it, 
there was lots of stuff going on. And it, it had to close because it just was not making money, bizarrely. Because if you read Peter Hook's book, How Not to Run a Nightclub, he works out that it personally cost him £10 for every person who ever went to the Hacienda. <laughs> but of course, the Hacienda still exists. It still lives as a, as a club brand. And we still do amazing club nights around the world. Uh, yeah, where did uh, Hacienda Classical, where did that come from? <laughs> right, Hacienda Classical... Uh, came about over uh, many drinks. You see, Hacienda club nights are becoming more popular with people who never went to the Hacienda, right? People who were born after the Hacienda closed. And recent Hacienda club nights in Manchester and in Leeds and, and around the country, everyone's been too young to have gone to Hacienda and they don't have that baggage of wanting to hear the obvious classics. Now, as a DJ of three plus decades, I still love playing new stuff and discovering new stuff. And it gets a bit tedious when people say, come on, Parker, get some proper classics on. That's just the women as well, right? Um, and so we had this idea, why don't we do something different with all the kind of classic tunes? And we came up with the idea of doing it with an orchestra. It was supposed to be a one-off and it ended up being a tour. And this year will be our fifth year of touring, obviously not last year. And it's just reimagining all those tunes I kind of got fed up playing as a club DJ and people love it. Meanwhile, Hacienda Club Nights, we can play anything and everything because everyone, well, I'd say 80% of the crowd who come to Hacienda Club Nights never went to the Hacienda. And you do that all around the world, both the classical and the club nights? We've been to the Middle East, we've been around Europe, all around the UK. We're back this year and we've already got dates coming in for next year. It's great because it was supposed to be a one-off and I've ended up going back to what I originally wanted to do, which was to play in bands, although on a much grander scale. Am I right in thinking there's been at least one occasion where you've done Blue Monday? Well, the last gig of 2016, Peter Hook's flight from Italy was delayed so he couldn't make the show. And I, I immediately said, oh, hang on a minute, Blue Monday's a big part of the show, who's going to do it? And the conductor and the girl who runs the choir at the same time pointed at me and said, you'll have to do it. Because we did a sound check in Lancaster earlier that year and Hooky wasn't at the sound check. And I thought, I cannot pass this opportunity to sing Blue Monday at the sound check. And because of that, I ended up singing Blue Monday with, in the show. And it meant the following year, Hooky said, right, that's great. I can't do most of next year's show. You'll do Blue Monday. At which point I said, uh, you're assuming Blue Monday's going to be in the show then, are you, Hookie? <laughs> of course it was. And since then, I've done Blue Monday several times. And then in 2018, it was decided I should have my own uh, songs. So I ended up singing a few songs. I have to ask, how does it feel to sing Blue Monday? How does it feel? It feels great, honestly, because I know the words. And I grew up a massive Joy Division New Order fan. I got asked to tour with New Order in 1989, North America. And I couldn't believe I was hanging out with New Order. And fast forward, me and Hookie are good friends and I'm singing Blue Monday. It's like a dream, honestly. I still can't believe it. It's time now to head into the box here for the first of your five Do picks. Do I get to pick? From 45 in this record box. All the questions are on 45, please. Yes, okay. Because I know it's on your previous podcast, you're doing the picking. Absolutely, because uh, they're not in person. So pick one of those out, okay. Your first question from the box is, what's the most famous you've ever felt? The most... Okay, it's a bit of a showing off, this one. Opening the pyramid stage at Glastonbury with Hacienda Classical. But then also, 
I mean, touring with New Order in North America and DJing after Public Image Limited and before New Order and getting booed, that, was, that felt quite good. Do you uh, like seeing the whites of eyes when you're DJing? Yeah, that's a good question because for the past 18 months it's been live streams and socially distanced uh, outdoor events and it's just great. I just need to smell the crowd. Well, not too much because, come on. Uh, but yeah, I need to see the whites of the eyes and smell them. And does that affect what you play and the way you play music? Yeah, it does. You've got to um, read the crowd, haven't you? I get asked this by up-and-coming DJs, how do you plan your set? Well, you don't. You have a rough idea in your head, at least I do, of what I'd like to play, and the crowd will dictate whether you can do that or not. Now, today, after this, I've got a gig in Chorley, I've got a private event in Wilmslow, and then a gig in Stoke. And they're all three different events, and I'm already thinking what I'd like to play, but it all depends on the crowd. Of course. Just play to the crowd, that's the thing. Don't be a dick and play to the crowd. That's how to be a DJ. Um, I think it's okay to mention that you stopped drinking, didn't you? And I wonder if that's changed the way that you play. It has, because um, it's very easy as a DJ or any live entertainment performing job to get carried away with alcohol and other stuff. Um, But on Christmas Day 2016, George Michael, who was born in the same month of the same year as me, died. And that really freaked me out. I thought, oh my God, George has gone. When I bought Wham Rap and discovered that George was exactly the same age as me, I was like, that's what I want to do. So I've always followed him. So when he died, it freaked me out. And 2016 was the first year of Hacienda Classical. So lots of shows, lots of after parties. And then I also did every Wednesday in Ibiza from May to September. So my wife was beginning to get a bit worried about lack of sleep and the amount of partying. So I just thought, right, George is dead. I better sort myself out. And I, and I did. And the past five years have been probably the most productive in a long time. Yeah, go figure. Uh, back into the box for a next question. You pick one out. Right. Uh, your second question from the box. If you weren't a DJ, Graham, what would you be? Uh, hopefully singing in a band and playing saxophone. Or a journalist. Before I kind of got the music bug and realised I could make a career out of it, I was going to finish school and go to Napier College in Edinburgh and be a journalist. You lecture too, don't you? Yes, I'm a part-time senior lecturer in creative media technology at Glyndwr University in North East Wales. I've been doing that since 2008, the last financial crash when uh, lots of clubs and promoters went out of business. And I lost all my radio shows. My contracts never got renewed. So I started lecturing just to tide me over. And uh, 13 years later, I'm a senior lecturer. Yeah, and do you love that? I really enjoy it. I love working with uh, fresh-faced young students and mature students as well. They're not so fresh-faced. And talking about my experiences and giving them advice. Because when I started out, you couldn't learn the stuff that I know now. Whereas now people like me can pass this on. So if anyone's got any um, late teens who are looking to, you know, work in creative media, Glyndwr University in uh, North East Wales is worth checking out. Those young kids, those young people must think it's amazing that Graham Park's lecturing them. Well, the really young ones, I've got no idea who I am. I'm just another middle-aged lecturer. But after about two or three weeks, they go, 
my mum can't believe that you're my lecturer. <laughs> or my dad has asked if he sends his CDs, will you sign them? That's quite cool. The, the mature students kind of um, know who I am, but um, I put a different head on for that. But there is a commonality. It's when I give a lecture, it's the same theory. You play into the crowd. It's a performance. You've got to get your message across so they understand it. Whereas when you're DJing, you've got to get your vibe across. And you feed, again, you feed off each other. Interesting parallel. DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I became a DJ to share my taste, my passion with like-minded people. There's a record that I used to play a lot at the end of the night, and if I didn't play it, I always thought people would threaten to kill me. I'm sick to the back teeth of it. Back into the box for question three. All right, this one is, what is the craft of DJing? Um, know your music and know your crowd and just enjoy yourself. It's that simple. I think there's a, a new generation of DJ who overcomplicate everything. It's not about the equipment, right? It doesn't matter if you use vinyl or a controller or CDJs or what your music's stored on or played on. It's all about the crowd, the music and a great sound system. That's all you need. A DJ who knows their music and can read the crowd and everyone's happy. It's not about the DJ. In recent years, it's become more about the DJ and, and I blame social media for that. I'm not knocking social media because I benefit from that like everyone else. But I became a DJ to share my taste, my passion with like-minded people. And a good DJ should be able to find stuff that the audience might not be aware of. And, and I love it when I go and see a DJ. And I, I want to hear things I've never heard before and then go and discover them for myself. Who are your favourite DJs? Frankie Knuckles was the greatest. And I, and I was a real privilege to get to know him and to DJ with him many times over the years. Where did you meet him? Um, probably in New York, actually. Yeah, I met him in New York. Um, I think it was at the Sound Factory Bar. Tony Humphreys I got a lot of time for as well. He's a great DJ. And Marley Marl, hip-hop DJ. I had a friend who used to send me cassettes of his uh, mix show on WBLS. And I thought, that's what I want to do when I started DJing. So, yeah, Humphreys, Knuckles and Marley Marl. Yeah, good lineup, Amazing. Uh, all right, back into the box for question four. Okay. Back in the box. I remember the days when I used to be out of my box. <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible joke. Here we go then. When was your best time ever in a DJ booth and your worst? Best time ever has got to be every Friday with Mike Pickering. Uh, nude night, 88 to 92. No question about it. Because without exception, every single Friday was amazing, as I've said before. Worst time in a DJ box, that would be uh, in Newport in Wales. I love Wales, but just uh, I was the wrong DJ in the wrong club. It was awful. Why was it so bad? I think for some reason um, they thought I was a rave DJ. This was in the early 90s and uh, it was just awful. So I went back a few years later when I was on Galaxy because Galaxy broadcast to South Wales and that was just as bad. <laughs> Did you love doing raves? What, the illegal ones? Yeah. The after 2am exactly, on yeah. a hill in the Pennines looking over Manchester in the West Midlands in the summer down a muddy track in a warehouse in Blackburn in the winter. Yeah, they were great. But really edgy. 
And I mean, they become big business now. The illegal rave or the warehouse parties kind of big business now. But back in the day, it was real edgy stuff because you were worried that the police could raid it at any point. But then you realise there's no way the police could stop them or, or shut them down because of the sheer numbers. They were amazing times, flying by the seat of your pants. Well, I guess I was just a little too young for when they were huge. Can you describe, you've, you've said where they were, what the atmosphere was like at those raids? Just intense because I, quite often I'd finished at Hacienda and I'd get in the back of a car and I realised I wouldn't know anyone in the car. Where are we going? Or oh, we can't tell you. And they would just head off an hour later, you'd be pulling down a dirt track and there'd be like flashing lights and in, in the distance, you know. And then next minute, you're in the marquee getting your records out and playing and everyone's completely off their nut. Were you ever at one that got shut down? No, because was, when I did do those illegal raves, as soon as I'd finished my set and got paid, I was gone. I didn't want to hang around in case. Unless you knew the people who were organising it, and then you kind of would hang around. But yeah, really amazing times. All right, one last question for the box, Graham. Here you go, then. Thank you very much. Lovely. And this one is, how much of what you do is instinct and how much is experience? I guess you've kind of covered a bit of that. It's got to be 50-50, isn't it? Um, experience. I mean, for example, when I do a private party, uh, yes, I'm available for private uh, parties. <laughs> I do a lot of 40ths, 50ths quite a few second weddings. Not done any 60ths yet, I'm sure that will happen. But when you do a private event and everyone knows everyone else, uh, you've really got to use your experience to keep that crowd happy. Because it's not like a club night where you can play what you like. Like a, any club night in the world, you can ignore requests if they're doing your head in. You can just keep your head down and do what you like. As long as everyone's happy, great. But at a private event, when you're getting paid a lot of money by an individual client, and people who tend to book me for private events call themselves the client, so you know exactly what type of person you're dealing with. That's when the experience really, really counts for a lot because you can't pull the I don't play shit like that or I don't take requests. You've got to work with them. But you get paid a lot of money to do it. I mean, like, I'm sorry to do this name drop, but uh, my best private party in recent years was DJing at Noel Gallagher's 50th. That was pretty cool. But that was different because he wanted me and Mike just to play what we used to play at Hacienda. So that was, that was pretty good. Was it a great night? It was an amazing night, um, as me and Madonna were, were saying afterwards, yeah. <laughs> Did Noel dance? Noel, everyone danced. Everyone danced. Madonna wasn't really there. Yeah, she was, yeah. <laughs> yeah every, you name any celebrity, they were there. It was brilliant. Did Madonna dance? She came in, said hello to everyone, then went. And I was trying to get Vogue on while she was there, but she'd gone before the time I got Vogue on. And um, Kate Moss said, yeah, what about French Kiss? And I said, well, we've only just met, but I'm up for it if you are. <laughs> and she didn't get it. <laughs> she did five minutes later. She came back and said, I just got your joke. <laughs> True story. Uh, just some quick fires remaining now, Graham. Uh, your tech of choice. It doesn't matter. I've got a rider that says for CDJ 2000 Nexus. I'm about to change that to CDJ 3000s because I used them last night, incredible. I prefer an Allen and Heath uh, mixer to a Pioneer mixer, but there's no point asking because everyone has Pioneers. Just, it's about the music, not the tech. I've used vinyl, MIDI controllers, laptops. At the end of the day, I've turned up to clubs where the tech's been shit. I've never thrown my headphones down and stormed off in a strop. And I could name you half a dozen well-known DJs who've done that. Yeah. I take the view, okay, you've messed up, but there's thousands of people here who've paid good money. Let's see if we can sort it out. I, I mean, I once did a soul night in Stirling a few years ago, 
And I said, this is, I use Serato with my laptop. Here's my setup. Turned up and they had this mixer from the 1970s that you couldn't get into at all. So I had to use their records. That was a great night though, because I was going through someone else's records and digging out old soul and funk. Amazing. So it's not about tech. Tech is the last thing you should worry about as a DJ. Reassuring to hear that. Do you have one single song with a very special memory attached, Graham? There are many, many, but I suppose one that springs to mind uh, is a very special record. It's quite an obscure record, and it's very special, as I'll explain. Um, Well, first of all, it's, it's called Boy Don't Miss That Train by Legacy of Sound. It's an amazing record. And it's by some obscure Scandinavian band. And, and the reason it's special is because my wife, Jenny, I met when she was working at Cream and I was a Cream DJ, uh, just gave me the runaround for two years probably. And then this record came out and the lyrics are, boy, don't miss that train that will bring you to me. I want you in my arms. That's where you need to be. And I listened to that and thought, right, I'm sending that to Jen. And if she doesn't get the message now, then that's it. And then the next time I saw her, she gave me a hug. And then that became our song. And then we've been together ever since 1996. 22nd wedding anniversary in January. A very patient woman. A very, very patient, very understanding woman, yeah. Have you got a favourite five in a row? Ooh, five in a row. I guess these might change. If I asked you tomorrow, it might be a different five. So right now, right here, right now. No, not that one. Um, right, top of my head, five would be one of the greatest records ever made, The Prize by Diana Ross. Just amazing when that... Da, 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 bah, 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 bah. Amazing record. Slightly more obscure, Forever This by Fries and Bridges, only because I played it uh, recently and I thought this is an incredible record. The Sneak remix. Uh, Everything Bamboo by Lenny D and Tommy Musto. It's one of those early house tunes. It's a New York house tune from 86 that still sounds amazing. That's three. What about... Uh, what about this love, Mr. Fingers? Only because I'm going, what about this love? To kind of kick it off. That's four. So a fifth one would be Melody of Love, the David Morales classic club mix by Donna Summer. Because it's really long. And if you're a resident DJ and you haven't got any guest DJs, you need to know a handful of very long records so you can go to the toilet. Toilet break, yeah. Uh, One last question for you. It's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would those three records be? The end of the world as we know it. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't play that. Well, I have to say, there's a, there's a record that I used to play a lot at the end of the night, and people, if I didn't play it, I always thought people would lynch me or even threaten to kill me, and that would be my remix of Brand New Heavy's Back to Love. But I wouldn't play that for that very reason, because I'm sick to the back teeth of it. Sorry. <laughs> it's your own remix. <laughs> yeah, because it's so overplayed. But anyway, uh, and I've done better remixes anyway. I would play I Found You by Axwell, yes. which is mental. Because if it's the end of the world, come on, we want to go out on a bang. Big party, yeah. I would play Surrender Yourself by The Dow, which is about 12, well, 15 minutes long, so it kind of ekes, ekes it out. The original unedited extended ballroom mix, It's because it starts off really sinister, Yeah. then it gets very euphoric, and then it gets very deep. Perfect. And it ends with Surrender Your Soul. Boom, we're gone. So that's two. Yeah. And a third one, gosh, 
Yeah, last song. Well, I'd play The Prize by Diana Ross again because it's euphoric, good way to go out. So we go energy, sinister, and then euphoric. And then I can go, and I didn't play brand new heavies. Boom. <laughs> Cheer. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much, Parkin. You really are a legend. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Sheffield. Graham Park, that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts from.